Well, hello and welcome to another episode of the New Ground Life and Leadership Podcast, here to help you thrive as a follower of Jesus wherever you are and in whatever you're going through. I'm your host, Jez Field, and it's great to have you with us for another episode. Now, today's conversation is one that I had a few months ago with my good friend, Andrew Bunt, looking at the whole subject of transgender and identity. It's a subject that's often presented in the media, but it's a subject that it seems rarely gets discussed in a critical and thoughtful way, leaving many of us in the church unsure who to listen to and what to think about the subject. Well, enter Andrew Bunt to help guide us. Andrew is an assistant pastor for King's Church Hastings and Bexhill, as well as an author and speaker for the Living Out charity, a charity committed to helping the church think about and discuss sexuality. You can find links to the relevant articles and websites in the episode description, so check them out if you want to find out more about the subject. It's worth also pointing out that a short time after we recorded this episode, there was a high court ruling in England and Wales against the prescription of puberty blockers for under-18s suffering gender dysphoria. This ruling hadn't happened at the time of our conversation, uh, and so there's a link again uh, in the description to the episode to a blog piece that Andrew wrote explaining the impact of the ruling and why it matters. Well, with all of that out of the way, let's get stuck into my conversation with Andrew. And don't forget to hit that like or subscribe button to be kept up to date with episodes as and when they come out. And don't forget to share this episode on your social medias or leave us a review on iTunes to help us get this podcast out to more people. Now, I began by asking Andrew to tell us and share with us a key lesson that he's learned over the past six months. Enjoy. question um i'll go for myself i think i've learned or maybe been reminded and um learned afresh the importance of uh meaningful intimate friendships to making singleness plausible maybe actually making life plausible but it's one of those points i often talk about i'm often teaching a singleness and church kind of being a living as family not just being a family but i think the the, the struggle really the kind of relational impact of lockdown um has just been quite hard and I think it's made me think actually yeah what I teach really is true actually we're meant to have really deep meaningful friendships and maybe especially for those of us who are single that really is uh, vital to, to thriving so it's been quite a hard part of the season but actually reassuring if not actually the stuff we're saying of these friendships make singleness plausible is true um, and maybe in this season we need to think afresh about how actually does that work in this very odd time. Mm. What's your living situation at the moment? So I live with um, a couple from uh, from the Bexhill Church that I'm part of, really lovely couple. So I'm very blessed to kind of have my own annex in the back of the house. So it's a great situation because I'm very introverted. So I've got my own space. I can entertain my own space, that kind of thing. But then we tend to eat together each day and share the kitchen. I know I enjoy visiting you over lockdown. We had a nice summer's evening. Legally after restrictions were eased. <laughs> I love that you, it was. I love that you felt the need to interject legally. Of course, it was legal. It was Andrew Bunt, <laughs> <laughs> very concerned about making sure we obey all regulations. <laughs> um, well, Andrew, to, today, you know, there's loads that you and I could talk about, and there's loads that I'd love to get you back in subsequent times to have conversations about. But um, I think I'd love to have a conversation that's going to perhaps help equip 
Christians and church leaders to understand some of the times that we're in and particularly some of the language and issues surrounding the whole conversation to do with transgenderism. Um, and so why don't we start first of all by just having you explain an overview of exactly what is transgenderism and what we're we talking about when we talk about yeah. people who are transgender. Yeah, cool, yeah. So transgender, one of the complexities of the topic is that very term is a very broad kind of um, umbrella topic. But the kind of standard definition people give, which then I'll unpack a bit, is transgender experience describes people's experiences when there's a disconnect or a conflict between their biological sex and their experienced gender. So our biological sex is what our bodies say about whether we're male or female, men or women. So it's our, our hormones, our chromosomes, our genitalia, our gonads. But then your uh, experienced gender, or sometimes called your gender identity, your internal gender, is your sense inside of kind of how you feel yourself to be. Do you feel that you're a man or a woman or somewhere in between or kind of neither? And for the vast majority of people, those two things align. If you're biologically male, most biological males feel themselves to be a man, same with biological females and feeling like a woman. For a small number of people, there is a, a conflict, a clash or a difference in those things. And so transgender is a very broad term to describe the different experiences or different or experiences of and expressions of that, that disconnect, that kind of clash. And maybe also it might be helpful to just define a gender dysphoria, because sometimes that's used synonymously with transgender, although it's a slightly different nuance. Gender dysphoria is the kind of medical diagnosis that can be given if someone has that disconnect between biological sex and gender identity. And that causes great distress. And it's the distress which is deemed the problem. And that's where the diagnosis of gender dysphoria comes in. So it's slightly different because not everyone who identifies as transgender would experience gender dysphoria. But actually, in kind of popular conversations, in the media even, often they're talked about as the one and the same thing, which they're not quite. Mm, yeah, I mean, you mentioned the media then. It's something that most people would probably be exposed to at that level um, through the, the conversation. I mean, in June, J.K. Rowling tweeted something that was deemed to be unacceptable to the trans community uh, and has experienced a lot of backlash as a result of that. Um, Louis Theroux put out a documentary a year or two ago um, on the subject of transgender. And there's obviously been a lot of just conversations that are taking place in the press that I think a lot of people watching that probably... Um, feel a little bit confused as to you know why this is such a big issue um where did this come from how did we get here and i probably if they're christians thinking i'm not quite sure what i think about this and i don't really know how to think about this um how did how did this become a topic of interest and relevance for you i so i think it started about five years ago i think 2015 um uh, American Christian psychologist called Mark Yourhouse published a book called Understanding Gender Dysphoria, which I kind of got hold of just because I'm interested in things around sexuality and gender, and read it and thought, well, this is a topic people aren't, I think, thinking about much, talking about, don't know, understand it much, but you could see in culture it's becoming a bit more prominent. And I think why I really connected with it is I felt there, just felt a sense of affinity on two levels. One of I've had my own um, I guess questions about or discomfort of my own gender, not to the extent of experiencing gender dysphoria in any severe way, but there was a bit of a, all this maps a little bit onto my story. But also I think it maps onto my story more because I'm same-sex attracted and I kind of have this experience of being in the church and how do you live in the church as a kind of a minority, as it were, who really aren't understood, just this life experience that people don't understand that historically has been handled really badly and often there's a load of suffering that comes with that bad handling. 
And I kind of saw what Mark Garhouse was talking about with people who are transgender. I thought this is the same thing, just a few years behind. This is a small group of people having a real-life experience, which the church doesn't know how to handle, often responds to badly. And basically, it was like there's a, just a huge potential for a lot of harm and hurt here. Um, and that, I think, just kind of birthed in me a bit of, actually, I want to understand this. I want to be able to equip churches, particularly to engage well with people for whom this might be a real thing. That's one of my big passions of how actually do we care about the real people behind all the debates. But also, I think, conscious of actually, if we need to keep engaging with these topics, because actually, the world is telling us that what God says isn't good on these kind of topics. And actually, I thought, here's another case, actually, the world's going to say that. We need to help us as Christians understand, though, what God says is still good. There is good news in this topic. So I think in those ways, it kind of quite connected to me when I began to learn about it. And then I found no one knew about it. No one talked about it. It was becoming more prominent in culture. And suddenly when people hear, oh, you know a little bit about this, kind of doors open actually to start talking and teaching on it. Mm. Well, you mentioned there that the world is talking about it. And the church often on issues that the world's talking about is several years behind, if, if at all, uh, up to speed with what yeah. the conversation of the wider culture is, particularly th- since things seem to move so quickly in our internet age and communication age, uh, ideas are being formed and shaped so much. Talk to us about the experience, the, the, the experiences of someone who's transgender then that would help us not just approach this from the point of view of this is an issue, what do I think about this issue, which is where a lot of people come from when they hear something talked about that they don't know anything about, they go, what do I think about this issue? But I think as you alluded to there, you're very good at uh, at not just addressing the issue, but trying to talk to the person for whom this is an issue. Can you speak into that for us? Yeah, yeah. I think I think for many of us, just the concept of experiencing gender dysphoria is really hard to get our heads around. Many people find the concept of how can you feel internally different to what your body says really difficult because we've never experienced it. Um, <clears throat> but I think, I think you know, and genuine dysphoria is an important thing to focus in on because that is a very real legitimate experience some people have unwantingly not chosen. That is what they are feeling and experiencing. And, and that can be deeply distressing. So some individuals I've spoken to who live with quite pronounced gender dysphoria, just talk about the fact, things like they say, they look in the mirror in the morning and it just feels like it's not them looking at them. There's there's such a disconnection between what their body uh, seems to be saying and how they feel themselves to be that even looking in the mirror, many people actually gender dysphoria won't look in the mirror. It's too painful, too upsetting. Um, and often because the body is so in conflict with how they kind of feel themselves to be inside and how they feel they would be comfortable to be, the body becomes a huge source of of pain and distress and so many people who experience severe gender dysphoria kind of think about chopping off bits of their body because they're just so distressing to them. One friend I spoke to said they multiple times have driven to a hospital car park basically with the intention of chopping off their breasts because it was just too distressing for them and they kind of parked up at the hospital knowing there would then be people to uh to help them and care for them. So I think there's the the internal experience which just I think it can be a real internal pain turmoil for people, actually. And something which is fairly hard to escape from. You don't ever really escape from your body. It's one of those, I think those painful experiences there's not much let up from often. But then also I think that then hasn't been understood in society. And so people who do experience that have been historically, and up to not very long ago, kind of demonised, kind of just viewed in all kind of uh, utterly unfair, unloving, unhelpful ways. And so there's been the internal pain experience, but then there's been the kind of societal 
your freaks and weirdos, basically, kind of how society has treated it, uh, treated people, and then kind of pushed them away. So there's there's two levels of of pain and difficulty. And I think even in cases that are increasingly common where gender dysphoria isn't um, diagnosably there, that distress isn't there deeply, which we're seeing especially among young people now, many young people um, wanting to be, say, non-binary, either male or female. Not necessarily because of a sense of gender dysphoria, but that normally will be coming from some sense of kind of unspecified um, discomfort, uh, kind of angst going on, uh, or just will be a desperate search for who am I? And how do I how do I find who I am? How do I make my mark? How do I live up to all these pressures that society and and peers and social media is putting on me to be someone who's really knowing who I am and expressing myself? And so I think there's all manner of different ways that actually there's real suffering and struggle going on in the experience of people who would identify as transgender. Mm. How many people in the country do, does this affect? Do you know that sort uh, of stat? I I'm all for numbers, memory numbers. I don't know that. It is very small, and it is an interesting conversation where the uh, the prominence of it in culture is hugely disproportionate to the amount of people directly affected. Which doesn't mean the topic isn't important, but it's just interesting that that is the case. Now, the numbers who have got diagnosable gender dysphoria at least a few years ago are very you know, are way lower than one percent. They're very low. There is this interesting phenomenon recently of a huge increase in teenagers being referred to general identity clinics, especially biological females, like a 5,000% increase over the last, um, I think it's five years or something. So, so I mean, the, the percentage of population is still tiny, but among teens particularly, there is this huge rapid increase, which rightly people are now asking helpful questions about. Mm, and the, the things that I've heard said in the, in the popular media and the reason why people are championing this as a cause is because statistics like um, 40% of people who experience gender dysphoria attempt suicide and so that immediately evokes a sense of compassion in people who think we've got to do what we can to help alleviate their pain and that's a that's an appropriate heart level response and actually talking to a friend of mine in the church who's a brickie and he's you know as, as a bricklayer um has not really engaged with this as a as a topic of conversation before but then came comes across the the documentaries on the TV, and immediately of Caitlyn Jenner, and immediately compassion is evoked in him as a Christian. He thinks, well, we should do whatever we can to help people like that. And there is a, an appropriate heart response that goes on to that. But I know when you've spoken, you you legitimise the heart response, and actually you spend quite a lot of time talking about the importance of a heart response, which you may want to do now. But then you're also very good at kind of balancing it with a head response and ultimately a hope response. Do you want to talk us through your your framework and format for talking about this? Yeah, yeah. So I do a kind of a three-part structure. I hope it's helpful. Questions of a, a heart response, a head response, a hope response. I think the he- the heart response is really important because there is a sense in which we rightly automatically feel um, compassion, heartbreak, even when we uh, recognise the distress that transgender people, people with genders, for experience. I think the reason why I put it up front and centre for a Christian response is often even either we as Christians haven't engaged with the topic to actually understand that's the experience. If we're just hearing the debates, actually often we don't get the experience of people. So actually we need to bring that to the forefront first so that, so as Jesus did, he sees suffering and his heart responds. Uh, that's really important. And also because we have to put our hands up and say Christian response on issues of gender and sexuality in, in kind of broader context have just been bad. And people do not assume that the heart response of Christians towards transgender people is one of love and compassion. And so actually, although we might say one of it might come obviously to us, actually I think we have to be explicit about it because we've just as historic as a church not 
done well with it. So I think that is vitally important as a, a starting point. And because there are still many Christians across the world who are saying things, writing things, posting things, which are evidently not at all expressing love towards people. It's Bruce and Genesis 4 who identify as trans. But then it comes to a head response. And the reason why I kind of say we can't just stop at heart response is the instinct with a heart response is to think, well, this is obviously the solution. Or, you know, I've heard this one story, this solved it, that's it. Or, you know, the person wants this. We need to make them feel better than we give them this. That, of course, isn't true anything in life, actually. We all know that just going of what we feel is best or assume is best or what an individual says is best isn't necessarily what is best. Actually, we want to truly love someone. We've got to ask what truly is best for this person in this situation. And so as Christians, we want to come for the word of God and say, actually, how do we thrive as men and women? How do we thrive in experiences of kind of suffering like that? So it's not enough just to have the right heart response. Actually, the, the head response, the thinking is part of the loving, actually. And so there I think we, what I think is helpful in this topic to look at is to talk about identity, because in culture around us, transgender is presented as an issue of identity. This internal feeling that people have is who they really are and so we've got to let them embrace that got to let them transition live that out because that's how they'll find their best life fullness of life satisfaction in life and that's the kind of things we see in the documentaries kind of telling us that kind of thing and then we had to stop in christians and ask well is this who people are and is this a life-giving way of finding identity and that whole thing is based on something called internal identity is the idea that who you really are is what you feel inside your desires your feelings and so the question we need to ask is, is that a good way of finding identity? Is it good to reject external stuff, reject the body, reject community and listen to the inside? I'm just not sure it is. Because the reality is our feelings and desires can change. They don't provide a solid, stable basis for identity. And that's true of gender identity as well. Gender identity, internal feelings can change. Our internal feelings and desires can conflict if they're in competition with each other which one wins out? Which one do you embrace as this is the real me? It doesn't actually show us who we really are. And the real kicker clincher is actually we all know there are desires and feelings we might experience inside that are not good and we shouldn't embrace and wouldn't be the route to fullness of life. And so actually there's a kind of inconsistency in the way we approach these things. And it just can't be true that what we feel inside is always good for us and always the right thing. And so then I say, well, then where does true identity come from? And actually, we come to the word of God, we see who we are comes from what he says about us. And what he says about us as men and, men and women is written in our bodies. It's spoken to us through our bodies. And therefore, it makes sense that the Bible says biological males should live as men, biological females should live as women. That's not a kind of old fashioned, traditional, restrictive thing. That's the creator telling us the way to true thriving and flourishing is to live in line with what your body says. Which means even if all our kind of compassionate instincts want to say actually no transitioning is the best idea for someone experiencing gender dysphoria, actually the word of God says that's not the case. But what we had to then get to is that does leave people suffering. If we just say to people gender dysphoria, actually God says the best thing for you isn't to transition, what about that extreme suffering people are experiencing? And that's why I think a Christian response has to end with a hope response, actually, which is addressing the reality of suffering. So what Christians mustn't do with this topic is say, well, God says trans people shouldn't transition, that actually this is who you are, so that's that. Because what we're doing then is actually probably adding to a load of suffering someone's already experiencing. But then we have to go, how do we help people live with what could be lifelong suffering? Which, of course, isn't, isn't in the slightest unique to the experience of gender dysphoria. So it's changing the conversation from this isn't about identity so much as an experience of suffering, and then realising we as Christians are 
wonderfully, maybe uniquely actually uh, equipped to uh, engage with suffering, help people with suffering, help people navigate even lifelong suffering through you know the Bible's big story and the explanation it gives and the fall and the hope it gives the new creation through the 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 power of lament and our ability to express the pain we experience through the uh, impact of community and to love one another and spur one another on that we're not in this together all those kind of things we would bring into a, a situation of kind of uh, severe suffering we're then able to bring those as a true message of hope which ultimately is then going to the new creation of the the ultimate hope of putting things together so I think all three of those actually what we need to be truly compassionate because actually that's getting what is from God's word the best uh, response to this situation this experience for individuals uh, experiencing it mm. all right there's lots of questions and thoughts and places we could go one thing I just want to kind of come back to is um so the 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 Prominent media figures like Caitlyn Jenner, who formerly was the Olympian Bruce Jenner, uh, who transitioned and was on I'm a Celebrity last uh, I'm a Celebrity getting out of here last year. And so for, for some people, that's going to be their only awareness of this discussion and, and debate going on. But to look at her, she seems, for all intents and purposes, to be someone who is who is, for want of a better term, healed of her gender dysphoria and is is now at peace with herself and so therefore is happy in an identity that she's chosen for herself you might say what what's what's are you saying that's not true actually she would be happier if she embraced a different way of being uh, uh, conforming with her her body's original design and intentions or are you um yeah and what's the harm to society of someone like him or her transitioning um into a, into a different state I'm not, no, I don't think I am saying that actually uh, life would be better for someone like Caitlyn Jenner if they hadn't transitioned. I think the, the Bible presents us with the offer of fullness of life in Jesus and in God's ways. That doesn't mean a life without suffering, without pain, without difficulty. And for, for all of us, that's the case, that it doesn't mean that. And actually, as Christians, in contrast to how our culture works, we can never do morality just based on, or ethics just based on what actually makes people seemingly externally kind of happiest um that's just not a kind of a it's not the way christian ethics works and actually christian ethics isn't just about this life either actually we have to take the kind of bigger perspective um and that's one of the real difficulties actually and why all of us resonate with all we kind of almost wish god said people could transition it does seem to for some people really ease the situation and take the suffering away but actually that's really to remind ourselves ethics isn't all about taking pain away actually that's not kind of how it works in terms of the impacts on society i I think i think various things about that on one level because there'll be huge debate about whether it does have a big impact or not one of the the big conversations kind of where the jk rowling comes in is about the protection of um single sex spaces and especially single sex spaces for biological women and whether actually allowing biological males at various stages of transitioning into those um spaces is is safe and is fair and i think it's a very legitimate conversation i think it's a conversation that needs to be had I think where the conversation becomes unhelpful maybe or is just not done always very well is you get a complete polarisation of those who care about safeguarding women and also men in single-sex spaces and those who care about the well-being of individuals with gender dysphoria and actually they can be polarised but actually both matter. Actually protecting single-sex spaces and safeguarding that way is very important and actually caring for people with gender dysphoria and the pain that's causing them is very important as well. And the question should be how do we find ways actually of trying to do both of those actually think about the the needs care for both sides of the conversation which usually doesn't 
get done. And I think as we think about the societal impact, those are two of the biggest areas. They're not the only areas that need to be thought about. Mm, and I guess you alluded to another potential society level impact of this when you said that there's been a 5,000% increase of the amount of young people um, experiencing gender dysphoria or um, confusion about their gender identity. Would you say that's another reason why we need to be having these conversations? This isn't just a, a matter of pers individual personal freedom because individual choices does affect the whole because we're not just isolated individuals, we're also part of a group. Um, is that part of your motivation? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, yes, we're seeing this huge increase in um, teenagers, especially natal females, friend cells are being referred to gender identity clinics. We're seeing, which has kind of happened for the last, yeah, five to 10 years. And so we're now seeing the first group of those people who've gone through the gender identity service, have transitioned, have had often puberty blockers, hormones, uh, sometimes surgery as well, and are now kind of in their 20s. And we're basically, this is, well, basically, it's been a human experiment. We're getting the first evidence of how that's working out. And we're getting huge numbers of, again, especially biological females who are detransitioning. So in their late teens and early 20s, they transition to live as a man. In their early 20s, they realise actually there was all manner of other things underlying their desire to do that, that medical professionals didn't help them to explore, didn't help them to reason with, you know, actually, is this who you really are? Actually, is this is a good way to find your identity. Are there other things going on? And then have detransitioned, returned to live as biological females, but often with their voices having broken in an irreversible way through hormone treatment, all manner of different things. Infertility often can come through puberty blockers, through infertility treatment. Some would have had irreversible surgeries to change their body. And so in a helpful way, there are many detransitioners speaking out and saying, we were uh, giving help to transition too quickly. And sometimes it is, we were sold a narrative that this was our problem. Often it's same-sex attracted biological females uh, transitioning and actually they come later to realise actually really they were, they were uncomfortable with the fact they were same-sex attracted. They wanted to transition so they were opposite sex attracted. That's a very common narrative that's being said at the moment. And so there's going to be competition between actually the kind of the narrative of, of kind of Caitlyn Jenner and many others who are saying no people really are who they feel inside and transitioning is the best thing. But now there's the competition of all these people saying actually we believe that narrative and actually that led us completely down the wrong path. There was other stuff going on but that narrative becomes so strong that it becomes uh, a controlling narrative in society, leading people in a helpful way. So, so always just being very slow and actually exploring things slowly, I think is the first step of wisdom, rather than thinking, this worked over here, we're going to do it again over here. That's really helpful, thank you. Uh, and you also talked about um, the influence of stereotypes and the internet that uh, seem to have a big effect on this conversation as well. Um, talk about a couple of those things and how they've uh, affected your own life even and how you thought about it yourself. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, stereotypes is a huge one. Stereotypes as in those kind of generalisations we make. Things which sometimes are true in the sense of, generally speaking, men are like this or they like this, act like this, women like this. And the problem with stereotypes is they are, to an extent, true. There is a majority who sometimes do fit them. But actually, often... Um, in all contexts, in secular contexts and in church contexts, so hugely, we kind of take those stereotypes and whether deliberately or not, we present them as this is what a man is or this is what a woman is. And then inevitably, people who don't feel they do um, align with that stereotype suddenly think, well, if that's what a man is, then maybe I'm not a man. It starts to exclude people and to make people believe that their gender, their sex identity is based on 
how they are, not kind of what their body says and what God says to them. And so that was, yeah, my experience, I think, very much, very much in my childhood. There was a period when I really believed that internally I was a girl. I remember it distinctly because I remember being terrified I'd get pregnant and my great secret would be found out. I obviously didn't know how these things work at the time. <laughs> but I think that was stereotypes. So like, everything that I saw was classically the boys and that I should like them a boy just wasn't me at school all the boys were off playing football with the girls with the, no playing football with the boys and I was learning and failing to do handstands with the girls and I just never felt I fitted in as a boy and I thought oh no I'm a girl inside and I'm going to have to hide that the rest of my life and that's what I commonly experienced as a child and that kind of abated as I grew up but then one even throughout the rest of my kind of teen years into my 20s I always, always had the sense of not really being a real man I wanted to be one of the girls not the guys and I would say things like, well, he would say that, he's a guy. Which is like, me and the girls were over here, the guys, they're over there, like that. And even though I wasn't identifying as a woman or saying I wanted to be a woman, actually, the sense of, I'm not one of those guys, though. And really, yeah, in the last few years, only, I've had to work through a lot of stuff of realising how much I didn't really believe I made the cut as a real man. And I was really influenced by those kind of stereotypes. But then it'd been hugely helped by realising, no, my identity as a man is given to me by God. God says I'm a man. I'm a man because God says I'm a man. He says that to me in my body. Therefore, how I am and my likes and dislikes, the fact that some of them are more traditionally feminine, doesn't change the fact I am a man. And I think you do see stories, especially of younger people. Although I've spoken actually to an adult um, transgender person who has transitioned, who says basically it's about stereotypes. They couldn't bear to live as a man in the way people expect men to be in our country. And so they um, transitioned. And so stereotypes have a big influence just for all of us, I think, as you're a huge number of us in our experience of gender. But then the internet is a huge one as well. And time and time again, the story of teenagers, you hear them say they... Um, they might have started with a vague sense of just discomfort in themselves, not quite sure what it is. And then they start seeing particularly YouTube videos of people telling their story of how they're trans. And people talk about, suddenly I had language from my experience, suddenly I understood this is me. And you go from this vague sense of discomfort, which most of us have in our teenage years, because they're not easy years and there's so much going on in life and the body. And then actually there's a story to explain it. And then it kind of just runs from there. And so many, you know, actually weren't identifying as transgender weren't even questioning their gender identity until they heard the stories and then often young people enter online communities because their their home context their friendship context even their school context might be very supportive of this new gender identity they're wanting to embrace but online you can find a community to support almost anything you want to embrace and suddenly this becomes the safe place and it becomes a, a bit of an echo chamber and actually whereas you know it can be a year ago the person never thought they had issues with their gender they suddenly heard it, this could be me, this matches me, I'm in this community now that's affirming this all the time. And then sadly, it can be that from those situations, people transition and five, ten years later, find actually that wasn't the issue after all. So I just think we need to be really wise, especially our young people, about how we're helping them to navigate the internet and the mm. conversations we're having with them about doing that wisely and well. I mean, uh, we've had lots of conversations about this. I always find it very, very reasonable, very thoughtful, but this conversation is explosive and it seems to be very hard to have in um, in public society, for, but also in the media. They don't do it yeah. in a very mild-mannered, calm, rational, reasonable way. Why do you think that is? I think there's various things. I think one is because it's become an identity conversation. So, I mean, it's, it's, a, conversation, it's a conversation which is important because it's about people who are suffering. So without question, it's important. But it's being given a different type of importance because it's identity. So actually, there cannot, in our society, be a, a kind of a, a gentle, reasoned conversation of this is your experience, this painful thing. What's the best way to help you in that experience? 
Because actually that's not, people are not saying I'm experiencing this painful thing, help me experience. People say this is who I am. And people have been told this is who I am. And that's rightly then touching my nerve. He says, if you really read that's who you are, then to say transitioning isn't the right thing isn't to say we don't think that's the best way to help your suffering. It's to say we're rejecting who you are. And that inevitably is a, a touch point, inevitably is a kind of um, a painful thing, a difficult thing for people. I think also though it's part of just a much bigger um, journey and narrative about kind of LGBT rights, about how that then gets attached to kind of civil rights and... And in some of it, there is a good reaction against very bad treatment of people who are same-sex attracted, people who have gender dysphoria, bad treatment in society, bad treatment in the church. And there's a right sense of we need to, to address that and make up for that and change that round. But almost because it's a group who've been so hurt in the past, now actually there's a sensitivity about not hurting again, which is right on the one level, but actually can also just stop the ability of there to be a good conversation. And I think what we said earlier, often there's this, there's competing demands. How do you safeguard safe sex, uh, same-sex spaces, uh, women's rights particularly, um, so feminists particularly, you know, have got a block things on this side, with also the reality of people experiencing gender dysphoria. How do you do both at once? It actually is hard to do both at once. And so inevitably, you get loads of clashes. Mm, that's really helpful. And I, I do find as we come into a conversation like this, on the surface, of course, it, it appears as though we're talking about transgender um, when we are. But really, as you said, this is about fundamentally who people are, what makes mm. them them. And in in experience, essentially, you're saying in the case of people who are saying my my presented identity of my body doesn't align with my inner felt identity. And then what they discover is there is a community of people who are happy to help them tell them who they are. I suppose you're saying we as Christians also have an out, an external authority source telling us who we are. It is supposed to be not just a community um, of activists in society that are, are finding a sense of solidarity. It is supposed to be the word of God and the people of God in the church. Um, is that is that help me? Is that what is that what you're saying? I think so. Maybe I nuance that is with with the transgender experience. It's not the activists that were telling you this is who you are. It's the activists validating who you are. So with identity, you have identity, who you are, which then gives you a sense of worth and, and uh, meaning and purpose. But then also you need a validator. You need someone to say that's okay and that's right. And this is really interesting. Internal identity, technically speaking, internal identity is saying what I feel inside is who I am. Doesn't matter what anyone else says. Doesn't matter what my body says, what my community says. I'm I'm my own validator. If I say it's who I am, it is. Which should mean that someone could be transgender or whatever they might feel themselves to be internally, and it doesn't matter if someone says, "Actually, I'm not sure that is who you are." And yet, as we just discussed. You can't say that in our society, which just proves you can't be your own validator. Even if you say, I choose who I am, you actually need other people to say, yes, that is who you are. We can't cope with the pressure of validating ourselves. With divine identity, identity from God, both come from God. God gives us the identity and it's solid, static, unchanging, it's life-giving, but also God is the validator. It doesn't matter what you think of me, what you say about me, whether you don't think I am who God says I am, he says I am who I say I am, and that's end of, that's all that matters. With divine identity, you get both a solid, unchanging identity given to you, and also you get the validation, which means that can never change, and it doesn't matter how well or how badly you do what other people think of you, which is why it's truly uh, life-giving to us. Mm. And I think that's that's 
partly where you know your comment about stereotyped identities within the church we've got to work hard to avoid those narrow stereotyped identities of this is what a man is i remember you yeah. quoted an example before of um, a documentary you saw where where the dad said that he knew his son was a girl when he saw the way she ran um which unfortunately we we would we would all kind of say oh that's a silly thing to say from a dad's point of view but in the church those sorts of things do exist a real man is someone who's like you know mark driscoll in the states or someone who speaks like this talks like that likes those interests um what would be some of your advice to to christians and to pastors on how to talk better about sex and gender identity because also just to caveat that like there is a sense where, as as a, speaking as a man who has not ever felt uncomfortable about his gendered identity, when I hear people say, this is what it means to be a man, if it resonates with me, I feel... Um, mm. I feel happy. Like I know. Okay, great. You validated who I am. I feel. Yeah. But if it if it doesn't necessarily resonate, it calls me forward towards uh, an ideal standard of behaviour. So there's not. It's not always wrong. In my experience, of having sat under some stereotyped teaching on gender, that I has called me forwards to become. Mm. For example, I would say I'm married today because. A preacher said that's what men do. They take responsibility for a woman. And that called a part of me out that made me realise, yeah, I'm being lazy. I need to take responsibility. And that's a good yeah. thing. And I stopped being so shaped by my culture's attitude and approach to relationships in that example. So it's not, in my experience, it's not always been bad. So I'd just love to hear your kind of mm. nuanced reflections on some of that. It's so tricky and it's hard to be nuanced. You know, going straight back to your example... If I, as a same-sex attracted guy, be sitting in the preach that says, no, what it means to be a man is to take responsibility for your wife, I'm not a man. I can't be a man. I wouldn't find it possible to marry a woman, you know, actually. Unfortunately, there will always be, in those kind of contexts, there will always be people who it helps and people who it harms. And I think that should cause us some question, is this actually the right way to talk about it? Is this, what, is this what's going on? I think, I think it's a question I'm still exploring and still thinking through, but I think I'm finding it helpful to distinguish between... Um, who we are as men and women, how that is fact and given to us, and then the roles we should take on. So I think I think we are men and women, that's an identity given to us by God, and as I put it, kind of written in our body. So it's not, our biology is not the only thing that makes us a man and woman. We are distinct in, in you know, it's, it's just more than biology, but actually the way we see it explicitly is in biology. You know, the biology tells us, oh, God says I'm a man, but actually it is, more than just biology, I'm not reducing it completely to that. But actually, that means it is a solid, static identity. It's given, it can't change, it's not performed, you don't make it a reality by living it out. It's not based on your know, likes, dislikes, and that. But then I do think it's legitimate for us to talk about roles. There are, there are things that God calls men and women to slightly distinctively. And it's often the case that how some of the stereotypes of how many men and many women are do kind of help feed into those roles but they're also not necessary so I think I think that those roles are very explicit when it comes to church governance and family life it is slightly more complicated and difficult I think when you get broader than that and that's where the question I'm still not settled on what uh, how should men and women live differently outside of a church leadership context and outside of a, a family context but if there are those roles it would be perfectly possible for you and I to both live out the masculine or the, the male role but actually, you may just do it in a very different way to how I do it, because we are wired very differently. Our, our personality and character is very different. 
And I think a lot of the ways that Christians and complementarians particularly have talked about what it means to be a man and woman, just the very language is unhelpful. Biblical masculinity and femininity makes it sound like to be a man or woman, you've got to do these certain things. Well, God says I'm a man, everything I do is masculine. So it's this unhelpful language. Everything I do is masculine because it's done by a man. Now, whether it's what I should do because I'm a man is a different issue, but it's masculine. It's actually really unhelpful language. And manhood and womanhood, again, actually, have I, am, I, am I keeping up my manhood? Am I really living out my manhood? That's not the question. I'm a man. What's God called me to, what's the role God's given me as a man? And how am I going to live that out with my uh, personality, my, uh, my, my character, my just kind of quirks? How are you going to live out with your own personality and quirks? Could be different. So I think that distinction between a solid static identity, but then roles, rather than masculinity, femininity, man and women, there's no stereotypes, is helpful. And so roles would be primarily stuff we're meant to do, not kind of how we do it, I guess. Mm, mm. that's helpful and that's this probably a, a podcast conversation in itself to explore this topic further i'd love to i'd love to jump back a few stages um and pick up on this reality of how many teenagers it seems to be are are, are facing this as an issue you know anecdotal anecdotally um most of my friends who've got teenage children are saying that their friends are struggling with their gender identity what advice or comments would you want to share to some just some christian parents who either have got children who are struggling with this or certainly are in friendship groups where a lot of their friends are now feeling very confused about their identity mm. how could you help those christian teenagers um speak lovingly but also re- recognize that by den- by denying some of the um what's the, the, the denying some of the language of the the transgender groups i'm my terminology is not great you can correct me on all of this um but but often kids will be labeled as transphobic unless they go along with everything that everybody yeah, says yeah. that's i suppose what i'm saying how what advice yeah. would you give to people in that situation yeah i think the thing of how you avoid the label transphobic is actually the most difficult one i just i'm just not sure we always can i just think christian convictions are inherently uh described as transphobic um, I think that the way we can undermine that actually is by actually, even if we hold to Christian convictions, actually being so um, deliberate and evident in the way we love, the way we care, the way we have compassion, the way we're not just rejecting and saying, well, no, God says no, get on with it. Actually, we're showing, oh, you're expressing that you're experiencing something. I'm so sorry. Tell me, what's that like for you, actually? What what helps you actually, you know, the story is showing there's real love so we're not rejecting the person. So actually we're trying to show we're not actually being phobic, we're not hating, we're not rejecting, we're really loving. And, and that's hard to do in a culture that doesn't believe the loving bit can be there without the kind of affirmation bit. But I do think we can actually show that. And I think many people in our culture, especially when we're in the wrestling side of this, are just longing for people who will listen to them and actually love them and kind of see them as a person, not as one of the many people in this kind of experience. But I think for the parents, I think you asked about there, I think there's various things. One, one is identity, just we need to help our young people and youth. You know, the most important thing, I think, second to the gospel, for us to talk to our teenagers about at the moment is identity. The fact that who you are comes from what God says about you, uh, not what you, not kind of what you're feeling inside, because that's so big on um, gender stuff, so big on sexuality stuff, on other things as well. Um, I think even, you know, even the way we parent can do that, even actually, you know, good Christian parenting that is gospel-based, uh, so actually we're helping 
trying to parent our children in such a way they know their worth and their value is not based on how well or how badly they do. Uh, actually, their worth and their value is based on who they are and what God says about them. I think that even affects the way you interact with the children. There's all manner of different ways we can do stuff there. But then also I think it's working out or reflecting on what are some of the things that draw people into this uh, avenue? What's appealing about it? Often it is the community thing. Many young people are, for all of social media, are desperately lonely. And actually, if you find a community where you are a very distinct community, such as the kind of trans community and people who really uh, affirm this thing about you, suddenly you found somewhere you belong. Now, most teenagers, most of us didn't feel we belonged to teenagers. If you find a, a small community where something specific you, for you share with the people you belong, you may. That's what people are longing for community. So it's how do we help young people experience real community in the church context, so they don't feel they need to go look for it elsewhere. And also just the thing of, for many young people, it is this kind of um, indescript, discomfort, angst, just difficult stuff going on in their, in their minds, I think, in their feeling. How do we help them process that? And there is a bit of an academic of anxiety and depression among teens, all manner of things, all, all manner of pressures and influences in their lives. Actually, how do we just help, I guess it's how do we help young people manage their mental and emotional well-being well, such that actually they don't think, oh, I've now got a narrative to explain this horrible thing that's been going on, I've not been able to handle well, but actually they're better able to handle what's going on in the first place. So I guess those two are some preventative things. And as pushing a fiction will always be, it's how do we give the better answer, actually, that God can provide, rather than this kind of half answer that a secular ethic can provide. Mm, thank you. That's so helpful. Um, Andrew, is there any other ways that people can connect with you or things that you'd encourage people to read um, if people have questions or just specific things they'd like to get some help on? Um, yeah, connect with me on Twitter. I post quite a lot of stuff on this kind of um, topic, sometimes I think blog, sometimes my tweet, which is just Andrew Bunt, I think one word, my Twitter. Um, Look out for Living Out, the charity I work for. We're launching a new website. There'll be loads of stuff on the broadcast topics of sexuality, gender identity. And we're going to keep on basically building a huge resource library there of stuff that I think will be um, kind of really good, really helpful. Uh, the other thing I said to look out for is Preston Sprinkle, who's a guy in America who is just fantastic on Christian perspectives on these kind of LGBTQ plus questions. Has a book coming out called Embodied, which is his kind of um, key volume on trans, which I haven't yet read, but everything I've read by him on this topic and heard by him is the most helpful stuff I've heard on a Christian response to trans. So I think that will be the book to get. There are books out and there are several good books, all of which I think have some failings, though, that I think will be the one which will be most helpful. So do look out for that when it's launched. Mm. Oh, wow. Yeah, I look forward to that. Andrew, I always love hearing you talk about this because you are always just, you manage to have that beautiful balance of grace and truth. You know, like you call it the head and the heart response. Um, thank you so much for all the work that you do in, in speaking on these issues and in trying to help people. Because actually, I had a conversation with Andrew Wilson recently who just made the interesting observation that 10 years ago, the, the frontline issue for a lot of pastors and Christians was that the, the conversation stirred up and provoked by the new atheists, Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, etc. Those conversations are past, and now the thing that people really need help on is something like this because the church is being marginalized more and more and Christ and Christian orthodoxy and historical convictions are being treated as being beyond the pale, transphobic, homophobic, whereas actually I think what you do so helpfully is show that this isn't beyond the pale at all. This is life-giving and this is where true hope is. Um, so thank you so much for all that you're doing. Just as we go, is there any final thoughts or comments that are in your head that you'd just love to leave us with? 
No, I think just as you just articulated, for me, it is always there are the issues, the debates, the topics, but then there are the people, and we just just mustn't forget that. And maybe what I'd encourage actually yeah, is go and hear some stories from trans people. Uh, look on YouTube, look at documentaries, and and don't be looking for the stuff you can get worked up about of the ideology you think is wrong. Listen for the person, their experience, their suffering, because I think that's the bit we the bit you don't get in the media actually, and just learn to connect with some other people and let God shape your heart. And that, I think, will lead you into wanting to do the rest of the stuff good as well, connect to the people. Mm, that's beautiful, thanks. And that, let's be honest, that's something that we find so hard is to sit in that place of internal discomfort as we listen to someone yeah. who's got a very difficult story. And we often don't know how to process that and fit that into our worldview. And so often the church just is rude about people or doesn't talk about it at all. But I think that's a really helpful, wise piece of advice there, just embracing some of that discomfort and uh, allowing compassion to be awoken uh, so thank you god bless you and i look forward to having you back on here to talk about uh who knows all range of things because you've you've just got a, a brain the size of a planet <laughs> um, brilliant goodbye right thanks mate oh there was lots of good stuff in there wasn't there Got a lot of really interesting and important things to say. I'm so grateful for him taking the time to have that conversation. I don't know what stood out to you. I really appreciate his comment about Christian ethics, that we're not always or primarily concerned about our immediate term happiness, but that we have an eternal perspective and we have a bigger perspective than just our existence and our experience. This is about the glory of God, the way that we live our lives. Next time I'm talking to Owen Hilton, who's a black pastor in Brixton, London, and we're going to be having a conversation about racial diversity and how to reconcile the church and heal some of the divides that exist within our congregations. He shares very openly and honestly about his experiences as a black man and as a black pastor in a majority white-led church movement. I hope there's lots in there that's going to encourage you and inform the way you live your Christian life and lead. Here's a snippet from my conversation with Owen. When, when a black person messes up, makes a mistake, or, or whatever, I don't I don't look at them as Owen. I look at them as being black, and so they they represent that to me. And particularly, I do that if the way if what they've done is a negative. So so if I've done something that's negative, I will be seen as a black person. If I've done something that's really positive. I'll be seen as Owen. So, so you won't necessarily associate my positive um, actions with, oh my goodness, I didn't realise that, you know, black people do those things. Yeah. But you might associate my negative action with being black. And so as a black person, you're having to navigate this world of, okay, I can't afford to do anything. Well, that's next time on the New Ground Life and Leadership podcast. Until then, thanks for being with us for today's episode. Don't forget to like and subscribe and share where you can. And we'll be back together again soon. God bless. Take care. Bye for now.